great to see this morning. If you're here for the first time, welcome. My name's Steve. I'm one of the leaders here. It is great to have you with us. And you join us on the last sermon that we're doing in a series of the book of Exodus. So it's like, it's like you're walking into a film at the last five minutes. So hopefully we'll be able to, you'll be able to track with us and figure out. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus verse uh, chapter 35. We're going to do the last five chapters as quick as we can in the book of Exodus. But over the last 20 weeks, we've been making our way through the second book of the Bible. And at the beginning of the series, I shared with you what our hopes were for that series. So hopefully, if you're here for the first time, this will bring you up to speed of where we've been and where we've gone and hopefully where we're going to end. The first is this. We started off wanting all of us to see the importance of this book, the book of Exodus. As you read through the book of Exodus, what you see is that the book of Exodus is looking at that, as you look at it, how would it be? Looking at towards the, the promises that God had made before the book of Exodus. And it's like a fulfillment of those promises, but also the book of Exodus is a paradigm for salvation and life for God's people. So what do I mean by that? As you read through the book of Exodus, and then as you read through the rest of the Bible, what you'll see is God's people, again, find themselves in difficulties. And as you read through the Bible, what you see is that they seem to reflect a lot back on what happened in the time of the Exodus. Because what we see through the Exodus is this paradigm for salvation, paradigm for the salvation and life for those who are God's people. In his book, Echoes of Exodus, Andrew Wilson says this, the Exodus is central to the Scriptures. It's central to the Gospel, the Gospel being the good news about Jesus Christ. And it's central to the Christian life. It's central to what it means for us to live as Christians. Whatever book of the Bible you are reading, and whichever Christian practices you are involved in, echoes of the Exodus story are in there somewhere. Somewhere. So right at the beginning of our series, we wanted you guys to know that the book of Exodus, like all the books of the Bible, is extremely important. And over the 20 weeks, we've seen it played out in three sections. And the first section we looked at was Exodus 1, chapter 1, verses, uh, chapter 1 through to chapter 15. And this was the journey to freedom, we called it, the journey to freedom. And what we saw here was the rescue story. For those who've seen the Prince of Egypt uh, movie, what you see is God's people, they're trapped in slavery. They have been trapped in slavery for many, many years. And God sends a deliverer, Moses, and he delivers his people. He leads his people out of bondage. And that doesn't come without any conflict whatsoever. What we see is God battling with the gods of Egypt breaking down the, all the gods that they worship, and then the ultimate god, Pharaoh himself, through plagues. We see it's through sacrifice that God's people are saved, when they're obedient to God, and when God brings the angel of death to deal finally with the stubbornness of Pharaoh and the stubbornness of, of the Egyptians, who will not let God's people go to save him through the sacrifice of a lamb without blemish that is coated over the doorposts of their houses, the angel that sees that blood and it deflects that blood away. God's people are saved through the sacrifice of another. And he leads them out and he leads them through the impossible route of walking through the Red Sea and then they worship. That was the first section. The second section we saw, we call journey to formation. This is chapter 15 through to 24. The God's people were taken through the wilderness and it's interesting, even though he'd saved them from 400 years, of slavery. 
Even though he'd done it all, very quickly they began to grumble. They found themselves without any water. They found themselves without any food. And their response was, why didn't we just stay in Egypt? Where we could have as much food as we liked. Which wasn't true, by the way. <laughs> Did God bring us out into the desert for us to die? We could have died in Egypt. And what does God do? Even though they grumble against him, he provides water and he provides food. And he forms them to be his people. And not only that, he gives them his word. He says, look... This is my word. We know that as the Ten Commandments. And it reveals who he is. It reveals to them, this is my heart. This is who I am. And then it reveals to them, this is what it looks like for you to live as my people. As you to live in response to who I am. Because I want you to display my glory to all the nations of the world. And the last section we've been looking at is the journey to communion. The God's ultimate heart is that he wants to be amongst his people. See, folks, I don't know if you've been to church before. I don't even know if you're a Christian, but I think a lot of people's understanding of what God is is that God is somewhere out here, miles away, watching all of us humans trying to figure out here. And according to some religions, that is, that is what it is. But according to the truth of the Bible and the truth of who God is, God's heart and God's desire is not to be a distant God, it is a God to be right in the mix of his people. And what we've seen through the book of Exodus is that God in all his holiness has created a way and created a way then to be amongst his people so that they would know his presence, they would know his communion, they would know his guidance, they would know his leading, they would know his grace, they would know his mercy, and they would know his love. And ultimately, we wanted everyone to see that the hero of the story is not Moses. The hero of the story is God. Because he is a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. Amen? And now we come to the end of it. Chapter 35. And I'll read the first three verses of chapter 35, if you're with me. So Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. For those who are here for the first time, Moses has spent a long time on Mount Sinai in the presence of God, hearing from God's goodness, hearing from God's word and instructions for what it meant for them to build a tabernacle, a tent, so God could dwell amongst his people. Okay. So he's come down, he's now given his commands to them. And this is the command, verse 2. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Now, folks, we have just walked through two weeks where we have seen, despite the saving work and provision of God towards his people, we've seen them reject him. We've seen them reject his word, and we've seen them build an idol of gold, a golden calf. You see that in chapter 32. Moses is with God, the God who has saved them, the God who's provided for them. They get impatient, and then they take all this gold and they create a golden calf that they worshipped, that they decided would bring them satisfaction, would bring them hope. And God's response to that is that he relents from destroying them all 
We see that he is gracious and merciful. And yes, he deals with the wicked. He deals with those who aren't repentant. But he still keeps his promises. If you look at chapter 34, what you see there is that God says, I am making a covenant and I will do marvelous things. Such have been told, been created in all the earth or in all the nations and all the people among you who, are, who, who you are shall see the work of the Lord for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So even though they'd rejected him, even though they'd walked away, even though they'd lived as though, you know, they put two fingers up to God and they're like, we don't care what you've done because this is where we want to find our rest, our identity, our purpose in this golden calf. This is the God that led us out of Egypt, which wasn't true. How does God respond? Yes, he deals with the guilty, but those who are repentant, he shows grace and mercy to. And then he says, I'm renewing the promise that I made with you. I'm going to do great things amongst you. Now, God's people have been given this instruction to build this tabernacle, this tent. And this tent, this tabernacle, would sit right in the heart of the camp of God, the camp of God's people. Because God wanted to be amongst his people, and the tabernacle was a way that God's presence could be known and felt and understood, whilst also being, God's people being protected from his holiness. Because the Bible says this, if you are sinful, if you've done anything wrong, anything, thought anything, it is a mark upon you, and God is so holy, so just, you cannot enter into his presence. You can't be right before him. You can't come in because his glory and his holiness and his perfection would just consume you. But God loves his people so much, he creates a tabernacle. He remains, his glory enters into that tabernacle, and he creates barriers for God's people. That was his intention. And he gives the instructions to Moses to be given to God's people so that they can then build this tent, build this tabernacle. But the interesting thing is, the first thing that they do, he does, is not share the instructions of the tent, but actually shares the command, which was the last command that God had given him before or whilst God's people were building the golden calf, which was to rest in him. So my first point is this, that we, the rest for God's people. You see that there? Before they start anything, he gives this divine command. Verse two, six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Before any work is done, any activity, before any giving to the work to be done, God gives the command for them to rest on the seventh day after six days' work. It's interesting, folks. I mentioned it then, but I'll mention it again. Whilst this command was being given, God's people, God's people became impatient and dissatisfied with God, so they made their own God. When God was telling Moses, tell the people to find their rest in me, they were trying to find the rest of their souls in something else. Now, do you notice, it's not advice that Moses gives. My advice to you to have a healthy life, to have a fulfilling life, is to rest, just have a day off. No, 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 it is a command. It's a command. And notice the consequences, verse two, of not walking in obedience. If they work on the Sabbath, they shall be put to death. That's a bit harsh. Agreed? 
especially if you're a pastor. I only work one day a week and people complain that's too long as well. Folks, God here is making it very clear to them. Before they embark on any work for him, that true satisfaction, true worth, true identity, and true rest is found in him. It's found in him. Yes, they're going to build the tabernacle, just as he has instructed them to do. But he wants them to know that the true rest for their souls is not found in their work, but in the one they are working for. See, the book of Exodus is about God drawing a people out of slavery to himself into his presence. And it's about drawing them out of a life of restlessness and into a life of rest. See, they've been longing for 400 years for rest, for freedom. And he frees them and brings them in to a rest that they were searching for for many, many years. Folks, the rest of the soul is the longing of every human being. The rest of the soul. Because we have been created to be a people who function, who work, who live. Not striving for rest, but actually live and work from a position of rest. In fact, I want to take it a step further. And say that the longing of the human soul is not just a longing for any rest, but the longing of every human soul is a desire and a longing for resting God. The great African theologian, St. Augustine, said this, We have been made by God. We have been made for God. And our hearts are restless till we find our rest in God. Folks, in our world, we have so many options, so many roads available to us that have signposts that say, find rest here. Find the rest of your soul, for your soul, here. And none of them truly satisfy. None of them. They never truly satisfy the deep longing because the deepest longing of our hearts is that we want to be with him. Because we've been made by him, we've been made for him. And we may not be consciously aware of that, but that's what this longing is. That's what this desire is. Why is it that when you see something or find something, folks, for us, for many of us, we're going to be going on holiday in the next couple of weeks, for some of us. And I know for a fact, because I'm, I'm one of you, that I think that those few weeks away, I'm going to find real rest for my soul. Till about halfway through week two or three, till I realize I've got to come back to work. I love my job, by the way, just to clarify, but are you with me? We work Monday to Thursday, looking forward to Friday, and we think Friday and Saturday will just satisfy, and then Sunday comes around, and then we start thinking about Monday. There is no, nothing outside of God. Why? Because the true rest of our souls is only found in the one who created us. We've been made by him. We've been made for him. And folks, can I say this? A failure to rest in him, a failure to know his rest will lead to death. It will lead to death. It will lead to death ultimately because we will ultimately be out of his presence or not know the fullness of his grace and mercy. We'll just know his judgments. There'll be an eternal longing with no rest whatsoever. But also in this life, 
Because what we find, what we think will satisfy, we get there and we think it satisfies and then very quickly it doesn't. And then we go for the next thing and the next thing, then suddenly it's just dull and it's mundane. I was sitting with somebody yesterday who's got the new iPhone 13 Max, right, okay? I like my phones, all right, I like my phones. I've got the iPhone 12, I feel very inadequate in his presence. And for a moment, I was like, that, would, that phone would make my life so much better. And I'm preaching the sermon today. The funny thing was, because I've got little hands, Sean said that I wouldn't cope with the big screen. So, <laughs> so that was crushed straight away. See, folks, here, before any work is done, God gives the command to rest. And then to work. To do the work for God from a position of rest, from a position of gratitude. See, the work that they were going to do in building the tabernacle was going to be a great thing. It was going to be a great thing. It's a great piece of work. And they were going to experience God's presence in a way that they had not experienced before. But their worth, their identity, and their standing before God is not based on that, but rather resting in his finished work. Resting in him, finding satisfaction and longing of the soul in him, and only in him will true life be found. A few weeks ago, Paul here, Pastor Paul, not the apostle, but the apostle does a great job on it as well. But the apostle Paul, the Paul, the, <laughs> it's just gone really bad. You can tell I'm on holiday soon. It's July, folks. My good friend and co-pastor, Paul, did a great job talking about the Sabbath a few weeks ago. So please, can I encourage you? I'm not going to get into lots of that. Go back and listen to that. I encourage you. But I do have some questions. Are you resting in God? Are you satisfied by him? Are you satisfied in him? Do you trust in what he has done for you? Do you trust in what he says about you? It's interesting. He said to Israel, you are my treasured possession. All this world is mine, but you're my treasured possession. You're the ones that I keep closest to my heart. You're the ones that I keep closest to me. That's what he says about you. Do you trust and find your satisfaction when he asks you to do things that maybe you and your own self don't want to do? Folks, are you resting in him? Or are you seeking the rest of your soul in something else or someone else? See, the rest of the soul for God's people is not found in anything or anyone else other than him. It's not even found in doing work for him. It's only found in him. God graciously gives this pattern, work, display my glory but rest in me. Knowing that you are who you are all because of me. Knowing that you have all you have because of me. Because you're my treasured possession because I delight in you and yes, Monday to Friday, I, Saturday, I want you to work for me but I want you to know that that work comes from a position of resting in me. Folks, resting in him 
embodies more faithfulness than working for him. Can you stop and trust him? Number two, we see through these passages, this passage, the response of God's people. The response of God's people. Moses then in verse four, what he does, he then begins to give the instructions that God had given to him in chapter 25. See, God had said to Moses that the building of the tabernacle would come through the contribution of the people. That these contributions, these things that they would bring would be an overflow of the willingness of their hearts. So Moses here, interestingly, he doesn't command the people to give, but rather he gives the command that the tabernacle is to be made from stuff that is from within them. And that what comes from them overflows from the generosity of their hearts. And look, verses 6 to 9, it might not be on the screen, it might not be on the screen, so if you've got a Bible, go there. 35, 6 to 9, look at the beautiful things that they bring. Silver, bronze, gold, purple, and blue scarlet yarn, fine twine, goat hair, I guess that was beautiful, tanned, ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil. It overflowed from the willingness of their hearts. See, do you recall in chapter 12, when Israel was leaving Egypt, God gave them favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. So when they asked for things, the Egyptians just gave them anything. So what did the Israelis do? They plundered the Egyptians. They took everything. They asked, if you don't shoot, you don't score. If you don't ask, you don't get. They took gold. They took um, silver. They took bronze. They took all the wonderful, wonderful things. God was giving them these wonderful things for the purposes of serving him. For the purpose of when the opportunity arrived for them to contribute to the displaying of his glory to the world. See, Moses calls for a contribution from what they had. Moses calls for a contribution from what God had already given them for the sake of enjoying his presence and seeing his glory displayed. See, it wasn't just giving for giving's sake. It wasn't just throwing into something. It wasn't actually to, to pay for anyone. It was to ensure the presence of God amongst his people and to ensure that his glory would be displayed to the world. And look what happened. Verse 20 and 21 of chapter 35. Then all the congregation departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stared him, and everyone whose spirit moved him. Do you see that? What did they bring? Their contribution, no, it says they brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting. It was the Lord's contribution in the first place. Their hearts were stared and the spirit moved in a way that they didn't see what they had as theirs, but rather his. His. Verse 22, they came, men, women, giving personal items, brooches, earrings, signet rings, wonderful things. They were being thrown in, being dedicated to the work of the Lord. They were bringing gold. They were bringing acacia wood. Verse 29 of chapter 35, all the men and the women, the people of Israel, whose hearts were moved again to bring anything for the work the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done. They brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. And folks, 
as you read through these chapters, what you see in chapter 36, verses 3 to 7, their hearts were so stirred up that they gave too much. They gave too much. Let me read that for you, verses 3 to 7. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning. So all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave a command and a word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. For the material that they had was sufficient to do the work of them. Their hearts were overflowing. They just kept giving and giving and giving to the point where Moses had to give a command to stop them. Folks, I've been in church leadership for 20 years. I have never known such a thing. Where God's, people's hearts were so stirred that there was just more than enough to display his glory to the world. I'm involved in church planting. We plant churches. That's hard work. And we have to scrimp and save and go funding and ask people. Imagine what it would be like if the heart of God's people around the world was stirred in such a way. That actually what we were saying is we've just got too much. We haven't got enough people. Pray that people get saved. People get we could do so much, so much. See, their hearts were stirred, the spirit moved, and the people found rest in God, which loosened their grip on their possessions and their purses, and they gave everything. And they were willing to stop at nothing to ensure the presence and the glory of God. But not only does Moses call for contributions, he calls for involvement. Verses 10 through to 19 of chapter 35. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded the tabernacle, its tents, its coverings. And then it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And he gives in summary the things they are to do. Moses says, look, bring your contributions and I want you to be involved. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all the Lord has commanded. And then Moses shares that amongst the people God has called Bezalel and Oholiab, verses 30, chapter 35, verse 30. And they are the ones to, to devise an artistic design to work with gold and silver and to lead the people. But again, folks, like the contributions, these skills and these gifts are skills and gifts that had already been given to them by God. Have a look at chapter 36, verses 1. Bezalel and Oholiab. Holiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any of the work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. There's so much in that verse. Okay. Firstly, the Lord has given skill and intelligence. And these are to be used to ensure his presence and to see his glory displayed. Any gift that you've been given, any intelligence that you've been given, in any way that you can serve it is a gift from God. To give from him. Yeah, you may have worked hard to hone that. Yeah, you may have more degrees um, uh, uh, than Fahrenheit. And you've worked hard for that. But the gift and the skill to do that is a gift from him. It's a gift from him. What we see here is that these people are going to use their God-given gifts for a God-given task. But they will not do this in their own strength, but rather will be enabled verse 30 of 35, 
by the Spirit of God, who has filled them, and therefore they will work in accordance with the Word of God, verse 1 of chapter 36. They will work in accordance with what the Lord has commanded. See, God-given tasks are not tasks that we decide and then we sort of press into God. No, he has given us skills and, contrib- skills and intelligence to use those skills for his purposes. But in our own strength, we're unable to do them. So we require the wisdom from heaven. We require spirit from heaven. And we need to walk and work in accordance to what he has commanded, not what we desire. As you look in the book of Romans, you see in chapter 12, Paul says this, the apostle Paul, not Pastor Paul, says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul, in his letter to the church in Rome, says this, verses 1 to 11, he talks, uh, chapters 1 to 11, he talks about the wonder of the gospel. The wonder of God's grace, the wonder of God's mercy, that we are undeserving of his grace and mercy, and what we deserve is his judgment, but he graciously saves us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, so therefore there is no condemnation for those who know Jesus. We won't be condemned. Even in the midst of our own sinfulness, and at times we we won't be condemned. So then Paul says this in Romans. Bring it back up for us, Jimmy. I appeal to you, therefore, Brothers, and that means brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, in light of what God has done for you, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Present your lives, present your skills, present your intelligence, present all that you have as a sacrifice to God, because actually that is the right response. In fact, that is the rational response. If God has done all of this for you in Christ Jesus, the right response is for me to give everything to him, to see his presence and to see his glory displayed throughout the world. God has done all this for us, so therefore we are to give our bodies as living sacrifices for him. See, God's people, in light of what God had done, in light of them being saved by him, in light of his grace and his mercy towards them and the promises he gives them, causes their hearts to be stirred and to let go of things to let go of own purposes and to actually give and to contribute and to be involved in seeing his presence in the world and his glory displayed to all the world. Folks, the staring of a heart is seen in the living of a life. It's not seen in the raising of hands when we sing. I do that all the time. I'd encourage you to raise your hands and physically and emotionally be involved when when we sing about the wonders of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we can raise our hands and actually live a life that doesn't reflect that our hearts have been stirred. See, the stirring of a heart is seen in the living of a life. So my questions are this. Are you generous And do you have a generous heart towards the things of God? Are you finding your rest so much in him that you can loosen your grip on what he has given you and loosen your grip 
on your purposes to be part of seeing his presence and his glory displayed to the world. Do you give to the Lord? Do you contribute financially to his work? Do you contribute here? Especially if you say that you are a member of this church. Do you contribute to other things that the Lord is doing around the world? See folks, money amongst non-believers is their security. It's their worth. It's their identity. And it's their rest. But money for Christians is ammunition for his mission. That's why we've been given it. Any skills, any gifts, it's for his tasks. Enabled by his spirit, with the wisdom of heaven, we are to use our God-given gifts to be part of the God-given task of displaying his glory to the world. See, folks, we, the implications for this are massive, aren't they? I can feel the uncomfortableness in the room. It's massive. It's massive for us. And the implications are there for all of us that actually if God has done so much for me, what does it look like for me to give my life for him? What does that mean? What does that look like? Help me. But part of the application of that is to engage with that implication in the midst of where God has you. If you're part of this church, folks, God has you here. Part of them displaying his glory through this group of people. If you've not noticed, we're trying to build our own tabernacle. If you've not noticed, then it needs quite a bit of work. We need to raise a million pounds to do this. Wouldn't it be amazing if our hearts were stirred so much that we wouldn't have to go anywhere else? That amongst God's people, that contribution could be made so that this place could be a place where people are one for Jesus, sent from here to plant other churches with people like you and people like me. Number three, we see the glory of God displayed through his people. See, God has rescued his people. He has led them out of slavery. He had provided for them and given them his word, and they grumbled. They'd rejected him, and they built themselves false God and an idol of gold using material that he had given to them. Yet despite their sin, he still intended to live amongst them. And chapters 35 to 40 shows us that God doesn't change. That nothing derails from his plans and his purpose. Not even the sin of his people. It tells us in Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, it says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, will not be consumed. You see that? You deserve my wrath, but I've promised not to consume you. Christian people... We deserve the judgments of God, but because we are in Christ, he will not consume us. He doesn't change. He keeps his promises. Now, in chapters 25 to 30, it shows us the theological reasons. Okay, what do I mean by theological? The theological, the, 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 the reasons why the tabernacle displays to us the wonder of who God is. God's reasons for setting out the tent in the way that he did. And 35 to 40 is about how the people built it. 
and how they are part of seeing his glory displayed amongst them and to the world. But as you turn to chapter 40, what you see right at the beginning, verse 1 is this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And as you read through chapter 40, what you say, he says to one man, Moses, you will do this. You shall bring in the table and arrange it. You shall put the ark in. You shall take the anointed oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is, that is in it. You will do the work. And it's all summed up in verses 33 of chapter 40 when the Bible says this, so Moses finished the work. Moses finished the work. He erects it. He ties the curtains to the poles. He consecrates it. And then as soon as he ties the last curtain and steps back, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. Verses 34 to 38 of chapter 40. Let me read it. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Throughout all the journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not, not set out till the day that it was taken up, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Folks, no sooner had Moses tied the last curtain to the fence post, the tabernacle is covered by a cloud and the glory of the Lord fills the temple. And God's glory is present and it's demonstrated just like it was in chapter 24 when his glory was seen around Mount Sinai. And in these three verses, we see three things. We see first this, this that the cloud was a barrier Verses 35, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So he wasn't able to go in. Moses wasn't able to go in because of the glory. See, folks, the book of Exodus has been moving to this point where God would dwell amongst his people. But his glory was such that not even the one who had been mediating for God's people, Moses, could enter. And at this point, we see the barrier between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of people being so necessary. So necessary. See, the book of Exodus leads into the book of Leviticus, which begins with God giving Moses a long list of instructions for making sacrifices at the tabernacle to pay for the sins of the people and to show them that the only way to God is through blood sacrifice. It's the only way that somebody has to die for the sins of the people because the wages of sin is death. That's why we all die, folks because of sin. God, who is a God of life, we've rejected him, we've walked away, we've walked toward death, and as a result, that's why we die. But we can be saved from eternal death, eternal punishment through the sacrifice of another. If somebody else pays for my sin, if something else pays for my brokenness, so in the Leviticus, he says, you wanna come into my presence? This is what is needed. You want your sins forgiven? This is what is needed. See, folks, with this denial of Moses being able to enter into the tent of meat in the tabernacle, God is showing the necessity that sin has to be paid for. 
Sin has to be atoned for. But what I want us to see here is that even though Moses could not enter it, it wasn't as if anything had changed. Let's not misunderstand and think that Moses was like swanning around in the presence of God whilst he was on the mountain in Sinai. He was sitting there just having a chat with him without any care or any worry. No, no. Yes, he was in the divine presence of God, but he was only in the divine presence of God on God's invitation, chapter 24, verses 15 to 18. It was only by God's invitation. See, folks, what we need to remember as Christians, and for those of you to know who aren't Christians, that God is completely in charge of his front door. He's in complete charge of his front door. My neighbor, Charlotte, she's sitting here, so I'm sorry to embarrass her. She's got one of these doorbells, right, that's got a camera on it. And I'm telling you, wherever she is in the world, she's in charge of her front door. Because you can press it. And, she, and then what's really interesting, this camera on this front door, if anything happens in the street, Charlotte can check her cameras on her, on, on her doorbell and see if anything happened. It's amazing. She's in complete control. control. Now, that's in a technical, technological way, but we're all in control of our front door. We open the door and we decide whether or not people come in. Correct? Correct? Yeah. God's the same. God's the same. He's in complete charge of his front door. See, he makes the arrangements and he chooses the conditions for entrance. See, by the time the tabernacle had been built, the golden calf had been made... Sin and the dire consequences have been exposed. The wrath of God had been revealed from heaven against all of godliness, and the Israelites, God, people now knew that they were sinners before a holy God. See, God was, and God is in control of his front door. He sets the parameters. He sets the parameters for how we come to him, how we know him, how we enter into his presence, how we enter into his rest. But God, despite the barrier, does make a way for a sinful people to know him, to enjoy him, and to be right with him. God has not just got a slam door on his presence. No, there is a way through in order for us broken, busted up people to know God and to know that longing rest of our souls. But folks, can I say this? Our salvation, the rest of our souls, is not found on whether I choose to walk through that door or not. It's all down to whether God is gracious enough, which he is, to invite busted, broken up people like you and me into his presence. He has set the parameters. And finally, the cloud was a guide. No, not finally, nearly finally, the cloud was a guide. Verses 36 and 37. See, God was amongst his people, not for him to be at their disposal. Not for him to be used by him, by them the way they wanted and when they wanted. But God was amongst his people as the sovereign one. The one who would be in active control. The one who would exercise active care. The one who would be leading them at every moment. He was the same God who had saved them from Egypt. And he would be the same God that leads them all the way to the promised land. But remember... They were saved to serve him. See, God's people were at his disposal. It's not having a God at our disposal. It wasn't for them to find the comfortable place to camp 
and decide whether they stayed or they left. No, they were to be guided by him. They were to exercise the discipline of guidance. They were to set out, set up, stay or go, only as directed by him. When the cloud moved, they moved. When it stayed, they stayed. See, folks, you know there, the guidance was not something that they looked for. It was something that they waited for. Do you see that? It wasn't something that they looked for. It's something that they waited for. See, it was the Lord's business, not a matter of anxious care on their part, to get the guidance right. All they had to do was rest, wait, and watch, keeping their eyes turned upwards and fixed on their God. Folks, so often we set the parameters of what we want God to do for us. So often we fall into the temptation of being the ones looking for the guidance, but often what we can do is just look for the guidance that suits with what we really want. When actually maybe we need to exercise the discipline of guidance, which means wait, rest, watch. How do we do that? By keeping our eyes on him, looking to him, praying to him. And when he moves, we move. When he stays, we stay. So often we wish our lives away. So often we're grabbing around for something which isn't there when God is right in the midst of us. And finally, the cloud was a sign of God's faithfulness, verse 38. This cloud, the presence of God, his glory was to be a permanent reality at the center of the life of God's people all the time throughout all their journeys. As they moved, as they lived, the glory of the Lord was with his people and it was displayed through them. Well, folks, as we come to the end of the book of Exodus, we see here, right, see here right at the end of this story what this whole journey has been pointing to. See, at the start of the series, I reminded you even, and I remind you even this, the, before, that the book of Exodus looks back to the promises of God and then it points to the paradigm for what the saving of God's people and life for God's people is. It was pointing to something else, someone else. And that ultimate satisfaction being the life, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, folks, we are all in, in slavery to sin. We're just all enslaved in it. It promises so much, delivers nothing. We're all in a place needing to be saved. We're all in a place wandering around, looking for the rest of our souls. We're all in a place wandering around, needing to understand what this life is all about. And what we need to see is that our freedom has been won and purchased through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus our Passover lamb, our atoning sacrifice. His blood has paid for our sin. His death paid the punishment that we deserve before a holy God. And in Jesus, our true deliverer, we have been saved from our Egypt, our slavery, our sin, the judgment that is upon us. And now, as his people, he is leading us through our earthly wilderness. 
And he is forming us and shaping us and changing us. And he is guiding us. And and, and a guidance he gives us is not something that we have to look for, but rather look to him who guides us and who leads us because he has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. And he has promised that he will get us to that eternal inheritance. And because of the finished work of Jesus, not the finished work of Moses, the glory and the presence of God indwells his people. And he lives amongst us and we are his people displaying his glory to the world with what we have, with who we are. We use our lives to give him glory and to display that glory to the world all around us. And folks, as we wait for him to return, to come down in glory, to live amongst his people in all its fullness where we will know complete rest, complete peace, complete joy, where he will be amongst his people making all things new. He will wipe away every tear. He will answer every question. And death will be no more and pain will be no more and we will be right with him enjoying his presence and we will find rest for our souls. In Christ, we are a free people, being formed by a God who we have deep soul satisfying communion with. Let's give everything to see his glory displayed, to see his excellencies proclaimed, and to see his glory cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The hero of the story, where is rest found? through this story and in our story, Jesus, only in Jesus. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make this wretch his treasure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you for your word but we thank you for Jesus, who is the final word, that everywhere we look in your word, it points to him, finds its conclusion in him. And we thank you that we are free people, can know communion with you, rest for our souls, longing for complete rest and joy and peace in him. Thank you for this time that we've spent in the book of Exodus. We thank you so much of how much it's revealed to us of you how glorious you are, how wonderful you are, how holy you are, how perfect you are. It's revealed so much about ourselves, how broken we are, how far away from you we are, but we thank you that it's revealed so much of your grace and mercy towards us, that you are a gracious and merciful God, that you are slow to anger, you're abounding in mercy, and you stop at nothing to have your people in your presence. And you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver and to die for us. But I thank you that he did not stay dead, that he rose again three days later, proving that the sacrifice was enough so that we, we Lord, who trust in his death can also trust in his resurrection, knowing that when he returns, we will meet him not as a judge, but we will meet him as a savior. Thank you, Jesus. 
thank you for your obedience to the Father. And Holy Spirit, impress the words of the Father in our hearts to stir our hearts for Jesus so that we can give everything that we are to see his glory displayed. And Father, as we come to the table now, as your son said to us to do, to eat, to drink, and to remember, we eat and we drink and we remember, Lord, knowing that you've given everything for us, that Jesus' body was broken so that we could be made whole, his blood was shed so that we could be washed clean, that our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the rest, that as you look upon us, Father, you see your son Jesus and you're pleased with us. And Father, as we remember this, we also remember that we still walk in a broken world where we feel the effects of our own sin, we feel the effects of the sin of sins of others. We feel injustice, we feel pain, we feel the issues of ill health, we feel the pain of, of loved ones who are struggling in so many different ways, we feel the pain of loved ones and friends and family who do not know you. So help us to rest in you, help us to trust you, Help us to know that you are in control and that we are at your disposal. Father, I pray for anybody here now who's standing at the door of your presence. I pray that they hear your invitation, your kindness, your goodness, your grace, that you have given all for them and that they step in and give their life to you so that they will know the rest that can only be found in you. We thank you for this bread. We thank you for this wine. We pray that you'd accept of our praise and worship. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. As the bread comes past, folks, eat. As the the juice and all the wine comes past, drink. Let's do this in remembrance, knowing that we have God who's who's with us. But folks, also, in my prayer, I prayed then. And this is the reality. So many of us are struggling in different ways, are feeling the brokenness of the world in so many different ways. So rather than just sit in silence, rather than just sitting on our own and thinking this is just something, no, what have we read through Exodus? God has freed a people to himself. So turn to the person next to you if you feel comfortable. Look out for somebody. Go and sit with them. Go and put your hand upon them. Go and pray with them. Pray for them. If anybody wants any prayer for anything, come and see us. Come and speak to us. I'll be at the front. Paul will be here. There'll be others as well. Come and speak. And folks, if people are looking, it doesn't matter because we are a people. We're God's people together. So as we eat and remember what Jesus has done, let us remember that we are part of his body together. Let's be the kingdom of priests. Let's be the holy nation that the book of Exodus tells us that we are as we eat and drink. If you're not a Christian, please let this pass. Something that we do as family. I wouldn't want you to do something that would be hypocritical, so please let this pass. But I'd ask you to consider what's been said. Consider Jesus. Consider who he is. And maybe pray. Ask him to be with you. Let's eat and drink and be thankful.